amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. The Happy Pod is a special weekly episode from the Global News Podcast, bringing you positive stories and uplifting interviews from around the world. I've got some good news for you. It's a beautiful place to be. A really good vibe, you know? It's the audio equivalent of rose-tinted spectacles. The world's happiest stories. Your story is absolutely inspirational. Uplifting. Remarkable. Listen now by searching for the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service, wherever you get your podcasts. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. Coming up on the programme today, what's the economic effect of Russia's weekend of chaos? Also, Canada's wildfire smog causes major problems for Montreal, but helps sales of, of air filters. There's a conference of Latin America's most powerful economies, but can Argentina and Brazil between them curb the power of the US dollar? And how can businesses best deal with a threat landscape? That's all coming up on the programme. But first, the mystery of what exactly happened in Russia over the weekend and the question of what happens next continue to dominate the global conversation. Well, President Putin has been on Russian television giving his version of what it means. Mr Putin said he would keep his promise under a deal to allow Wagner members to go to Belarus. We know that the overwhelming majority of the fighters and commanders of the Wagner group are patriots, loyal to Russia and their people. Their courage on the battlefield is testament to this. They try to use them against their own brothers. I thank those soldiers and commanders of the Wagner group who made the only right decision those who did not shed the blood of their own brothers and sisters and stepped away from the abyss. President Putin, well, the man who led the mutiny, Yevgeny Prigozhin, released an audio recording on social media as well. He said his fighters had been protesting against attempts to bring the Wagner group under the Russian Defence Ministry control. After just one day, we only had 200 kilometers left to Moscow. We entered Rostov City and we took it fully under our control. It was peaceful. We did not aim to overthrow the existing regime, nor the legitimate power. And we turned back so that we would not spill the blood of Russian soldiers. So what are the economic implications of all this? Well, Wagner is a business and it operates mercenaries for cash in parts of Africa and the Middle East. Alexandra Propokenko is a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Moscow, and I asked her earlier what effect Wagner's uprising has had on the Russian economy. 
Not sure that Wagner was among some sort of the taxpayers. So they were self-sufficient in terms of paying for their own activities in Middle East or basically in Africa. And I truly believe that its owner, Evgeny Prigozhin, had some external sources of money, a part of Russian state contracts or some, I don't know, supplies uh, from Ministry of Defense. But for Russian economy, Wagner group isn't a phenomenon or isn't a, a huge taxpayer. But as far as uh, bringing uh, links, I suppose, to various parts of the world and then economics through that, i.e. imports, exports, was it essentially a kind of ambassador for Russia? I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so because Wagner operates in very specific areas like Syria or in very specific areas of Africa where the ordinary businesses don't want to operate at all. I mean, so Prigozhin has a company called Europolis who operates in Syria. And once I asked my sources from oil industry, why are they okay with this? And they said that they are completely okay because they don't want to go there because the situation there is not stable. They will never return their investments. And if Prigozhin wants to deal with the Syrian oil, that's his own business. So I wouldn't say that it's some sort of ambassador of Russian economy, but it was some sort of shadow pocket for some shadow operations, which was beneficial not only for Prigozhin, but maybe for some of his friends among Russian state. Is there also an issue now that the sense from certain countries that trade with Russia that perhaps Russia is not a stable place at the moment? Could that perhaps cause issues as far as they're wanting to continue to do business with Russia? I will ask you back, was Russian state considered as a stable after the full-scale invasion to Ukraine? I mean, the West already has already broke most ties with Russia, and uh, I'm not sure that for countries from global south, this uh, Wagner's outbreak is an issue. I mean, look at the trade networks for Chinese companies. China continued to trade uh, with Iran, with North Korea, with the, and uh, with other fallen states. So I I'm not sure that that's some sort of uh, a big issue for Russia. But what was interesting in terms of economy is uh, the behavior of Russian population. We know now from numbers that Russian people uh, just they went to the bank and started to get cash from that. And the demand on cash raised on 30 percent. And that's the highest record since mobilization, which means that Russian people, Russian population are much more rational than Russian state. And in term, in case of an emergency, they just saving cash. What about the Russian stock market? And, and that is a measure of confidence. What, what are you seeing there? Uh, Russian stock market decreased, but we saw today that it started to raise again. But I think it's important to always keeping in mind, speaking about Russian stock market, that it's some sort of toy casino right now. I mean, in regular open economy with regular stock market, with uh, supervision, with ratings, this outbreak would have enormous impact on economy. But Russian economy is quite isolated from the global one with the sanctions. So uh, stock market is decreasing, but actually, who cares? <laughs> so the overall effect in terms of, of Russia's economy from all this, well, actually, is quite limited because essentially it doesn't make it much worse than it was already. Yes, indeed. 
definite answer there from Alexandra Prokopenko, non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Moscow. Well, she said that the markets weren't really in Russia doing particularly well, but not particularly badly either. What about the markets in the West, rest of the world? What about Wall Street? Let's talk now to Peter Jankowskis of Arbor Financial Services. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Peter. Um, well, Wall Street's three major indices didn't do that well today, did they? No, but but I think it was really related more to uh, concerns about uh, interest rate increases, uh, really continuing the trend that started at mid-month. Uh, a lot of the really highly valued companies were the ones that led the market lower. So you don't think the chaos and the potential chaos and global implications of what was going on in Russia really was was doing much? No, not at all. Not at all in the U.S. market. Uh, and in, you looked at some of the uh, global indicators like uh, the price of wheat. Uh, wheat futures actually, once trading opened uh, in the Chicago market, uh, actually declined on the day. So that suggests that uh, they don't anticipate this causing an escalation in the conflict. Well, you did mention, of course, uh, some reaction to what we saw last week, which was the the interest in the interest rate rises for the future, particularly the words coming from the uh, Fed chair, uh, of course, Jay Powell, but also what was going on in the Bank of England, also Bank of Turkey. Where, As we start a new week, where do you think we are in this narrative? What comes next? How soon will we see what clearly Jay Powell was signaling that there will be future rate rises in the U.S.? I think here in the United States, uh, I'd expect we could see some rate increases, certainly by the end of the third quarter, uh, if not at their first meeting uh, of the month or of the uh, quarter, which I believe is uh, coming up here in July. So, um, you know, we we're likely to see that that next rate increase fairly soon. But once we get that in and one more after that, I, I think you'll start to see some of that optimism building again. Uh, that, you know, the Fed will be ready to stop for good. And what about the labor market? Because this is, whenever I talk to you, we, we always mention this, this is something, the tight labor market. There were certainly signs last week that perhaps it was loosening a bit, or some people were seeing that. Do you see that? And what effect will it have if that is the case? Well, uh, it's interesting that uh, what we have seen is kind of a mixed signal. We We have seen continued growth in the number of employed, but the number of hours worked is actually declining. Uh, and there has been some talk that uh, employers are kind of stockpiling uh, employees, if you will, so that should there be an uptick uh, in in the economy, they have workers ready to go and, and to service those needs. So it's a very peculiar labor market at the moment. Uh, it remains tight, but yet labor isn't being fully, fully utilized. Now, one other benchmark that, that I know a lot of people like to keep an eye on is what's going on with Treasury yields as an indicator, really, of, of how the economy is going. Well, what are you seeing there and what do you think it means? Well, uh, right now, we're, we're continuing to see elevated yields at the shorter end of the curve, which is uh, looking at what the Fed is doing very near term uh, in terms of rates. The longer end of the curve right now hasn't been moving around very much. So I think people are still sticking with uh, expectations that long-term inflation will be contained. And we're going to have more Fed speakers, I think, this week in various for us. But you're expecting them to stick in line pretty much with, with the line that Jay Powell's been pushing? I think they will. I think they will. Um, if you look at the dot plots that came out after the last meeting, which is where you get a feel for what each of the individual uh, governors and, and uh, members of the FOMC are thinking, there was pretty good agreement that, that we're going to have at least one and potentially two more rate increases. So 
uh, I don't expect there to be any wild cards being thrown out by these speakers. Peter, thanks for being with us once again. Peter Jankowski is there of Arbor Financial Services in Chicago. Well, let's look a little further north than Wall Street and into Canada. Canada's been having a rather difficult time. Wildfires have continued to rage across the province of Quebec, leading to Montreal to register the worst air quality in the world on Sunday and into Monday morning. Earlier, a Montreal resident, independent filmmaker Jacob Greenblatt, told us what it was like to be there. I was just coming out of my house and you can smell it. You can smell the burning wood. Even me as a young person, it was hard for me to breathe outside. You know, I was coughing. You know, if you're too long outside, you, you're actually coughing, you know, because it, it was so thick there and it was really, really bad. You know, it's, uh, you, I couldn't stay long for out, for out too long. I was going in and out. I was shooting a, a video of the smoke and I was going in and out of the car because I couldn't stay as long as I wanted outside because it was very, very thick, the air. This has been a, a reasonably frequent occurrence, hasn't it, in the last few months? The, and some of the smog has gone south of the border into the U.S. as well. Uh, is it worse than it has been in previous years? I, I'm 32 years old. This is the worst that I ever experienced. We had barely visibility on you know, all the sites, like the bridges and stuff. It was very, very rough. Well, there is good news in that Jacob told me that rain has been falling in the city, which has improved air quality a bit. In the meanwhile, many Canadians have been relying, inevitably, on air purifiers. Well, let's talk to Elias Goma, who is the founder of Atmosk Canada, an air purifier manufacturer based in Montreal. Elias, thanks so much for being with us. Um, I guess, state the obvious, you've probably seen an increase in demand, haven't you? It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, just to give a little background, uh, my name is Elias Goma, founder of Atmosphere Air Purifiers Canada. We've been specializing in the industry of air purification since 2014. We've been developing systems for residential, commercial, and industrial yeah. clients with a team of biologists, chemists, and engineers dedicated to researching and developing. And have you seen system. growing demand for it? Yes. Yeah, so there's definitely been a significant increase in demand for our air purification systems. Uh, we've seen an increase in inquiries from both residential and commercial clients. Our team has been working tirelessly to help our clients with their concerns, raise awareness on the importance of clean air, and we're offering expedited shipping at no extra charge to our clients so they can be protected during the difficult times. Uh, we're proud to be specializing in the technology that can offer relief yeah. during the times of distress. Uh, it's often that we look at uh, the physical challenges wildfires bring to communities. However, it's also important to look at the load of psychological stress that wildfires can have on individuals, especially those in high-risk regions. Well, indeed. And Elias, but I mean, you know, it's great that that, uh, that you're doing this, but clearly, I guess it's it's a bit of a money spinner for you at the moment. I mean, business is good, isn't it? It is, uh, yeah. So there's definitely been the increase. Um, however, as I mentioned, uh, we are trying to help our clients um, a lot more nowadays, especially with the uh, no extra charge to our clients. We're also working with some health centers and senior age homes to be able to offer them our service at no no charge at all, uh, just to be able to help. We're very proud that actually that our studies and research in air purification is being put to good use on the front lines, especially in times of need. Indeed. And Elias, just give us a sense. I mean, you're there. What, what, what is it like? What has the, um, the, the smog been like to be there? I mean, how are businesses able to function even with your air purifiers? Yeah, of course. So the current PM2.5 concentrations in Montreal is around 10 times the uh, recommended limit set by the World Health Organization. I mean, we've had almost all outdoor activities such as sports and gatherings either postponed or cancelled, especially in the high-risk regions. The overall situation concerning wildfires uh, in North America is, is it's very serious considering the scope and magnitude. But nonetheless, I have many friends on the front lines that are battling the fires and offering medical help, and they're quite uh, positive with their approach, and they're hopeful that the situation can be brought under control, especially with the rain in the forecast. Well, indeed. How have you been managing? I guess 
yes, you got one of your air purifiers, so presumably it's improved in things. Of course, of course. I mean, wildfires depose a variety of hazardous substances that can be inhaled and that can cause serious respiratory issues. I mean, just to name a few, carbon monoxide, uh, volatile organic compounds, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Uh, these are released when there's combustion of organic matter, such as vegetation and trees, which can be very hazardous. Uh, some of them, such as benzene and formaldehyde, have also been associated with adverse health effects like cancer, respiratory illnesses, and developmental issues. Uh, when it comes to looking for an air purifier, it's very important to look for one with HEPA filters, which are high-efficiency particulate filters. And uh, our HEPA filters, our atmosphere HEPA filters, are well, actually medical grade. I was just going to ask you on that, Elias, if I may. I mean, obviously, I don't know the details of this, but what you're dealing with uh, in uh, this situation, I imagine, is more than you would expect an air filter to have to deal with. So uh, are you, have you got uh, one that can work in situations this extreme? Right. So, yeah. So when it, when it comes time to choosing an air purifier, especially for wildfire smoke that can cause uh, serious headaches, dizziness and even hospitalization, it's important for ones that offer HEPA filters. Ours, uh, our atmosphere HEPA filters are medical grade, so they remove 99.9% of all airborne pollutants and, and pathogens. It's also equally important for them to have activated carbon filters, which specialize in trapping and neutralizing odors, volatile organic compounds and chemical fumes like a sponge, uh, which are very prevalent in wildfire smoke. So so our atmosphere purifiers offer pounds of granulated carbon to work alongside our medical grade HEPAs, uh, which provide the wide, widest range of filtration. I also just want to note up, mm. put a small note that it's equally important to um, that wildfires can, as air purifiers can significantly reduce the concentration of pollutants indoors. It's still very important to follow local authorities and their guidelines on any evacuation. Yeah, to, to take to take note of obviously what the authorities say, but I guess you have to clean them out presumably more if if there's more pollution there. You can't just let them run and see what happens. Of course. So we do have automated modes. Our air purifiers have sensors that will monitor the PM2.5 particulate matters in the area, and they will notify our, uh, the clients and the users when it is time to either replace or to put the, the unit in a higher setting, even though it does it automatically. Our, our clients are able to increase the speed on, okay. on their own manually and adjust to um, the recommendations set by the health care. Authorities. All right, Elias, thanks so much for being with us. There we are, a Thank lot you. to learn about how to use an air purifier and the kind of extreme conditions that they are now facing in Montreal. Well, let's move our focus quite a long way south of that, indeed, into South America. The presidents of the region's two biggest economies have been meeting. Brazil's Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, commonly known as Lula, hosted his Argentine counterpart, Alberto Fernandes. The two nations have been talking recently about setting up a shared currency to try and help them break their dependency on the US dollar. Well, joining us now is Silvia Colombo. She's a columnist at the Brazilian newspaper Folia in Sao Paulo. She's usually based in the Argentine capital, Buenos Aires, in fact, but she's in Brazil at the moment where she's been following the meeting. Silvia, thank you so much for joining us here on World Business Report. So first of all, um, just tell us what's come out of this meeting. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, President Lula... Uh, just welcome today President uh, Alberto Fernandes to Brasilia uh, on the edge of the celebration of the 200 years of diplomatic alliance between the two countries. But most of the agenda uh, was uh, about economic relations, economic cooperation, and trying to, to, to uh, defrose uh, the, the relationship between Brazilian and Brazil in Argentina mm -hmm. on the Bolsonaro government that was kind of frozen. 
Yes, because there was there was a period during which relations were not that good, obviously. Uh, but that's right. But but let's just focus on a couple of issues. So first of all, this planned shared currency. We reported about it before here on World Business Report. What would it mean, and and how mm-hmm. how close is it? Do you think is it likely to happen? Yes, the the, the shared currency is a long and huge. Uh, debate that that's being uh, made in, in between Brazil and Argentina for more than 20 years now. Uh, when Lula uh, get into, got into the presidency, he started to talk. Uh, he restarted the talks with uh, Argentine president, and there was a lot of confusion at this time, a lot of disinformation because they uh, uh, they would announce it as a shared currency which is wrong in, in, in the idea, in the general idea. The idea is to create a monetary unit that could uh, facilitate the trading between Brazil, Argentina, and the other countries of Mercosul, uh, as Paraguay and, and Uruguay. But a lot of people understood that as a, having a, a, a common currency, like the euro in, in Europe, which is not the case. That would work only in the Mercosul uh, area and only as a unit for trade. Right. Yes, they did talk about this today. Okay. Uh, and, and although the tra- it was not the main issue. Okay. And the trade Sorry. that you're talking about, just, just people who don't know, what, are, what is the main trade between Brazil and Argentina? How does it work? What do they trade? Yeah, they trade a, a lot. Actually, Brazil and Argentina are the most important commercial exchanging in South America. Uh, they they used to be in around the figure of $40 billion each year. Nowadays, it fell uh, to uh, $15 billion. So what Lula wants is to increase that. And in order to increase that, uh, he, he would need to help Argentina with the economic monetary fund. Um, Argentina has a, a huge debt with this fund, and Lula is trying to help Argentina with that. Well, I was just going to ask about that because I, I, it's no secret. Obviously, the Argentina's economy has gone through a lot of difficulties, particularly recently, and including in relations with the IMF. Can Brazil really help with that? Uh, Lula uh, started helping uh, by mentioning the issue in some international forums. Like the the summit in Paris last week, he said this this debt is unfair. is unfair to uh, Alberto Fernandes to pay it when it was asked during uh, Mauricio Macri, Macri, his predecessor, uh, who asked this uh, when he was in in a currency crisis. Uh, so Lula is trying to uh, get attention for the problem of Argentine debt, but this is something that uh, it, 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 it to have to 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 conglomerate a lot of people who wants to forgive Argentina for the debt. So, and it's a, this is a main issue for Fernandez because this is an electoral year in Argentina. They are going to choose the next president. Well, yeah, I was going to mention that because, of course, at the moment, the political colour, if you like, of Argentina and Brazil is fairly similar, but it might not be in the future, I suppose. Yeah, might not be in the future. That's true. Argentina had some some previous gener- uh, regional elections the last few weeks, and the trend uh, is 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 mostly for the opposition. I mean, the opposition uh, may win in October, but not the the the, the extreme opposition because you know there is a radical. Uh, right-wing uh, candidate uh, whose name is Javier Milei, and then the Democratic 
uh, right, if you want to say that. And he, they are the, the favorite ones to get to the to the to the post, to the president, the presidential post. Yeah, well, we will see what happens. It's very interesting to see how that relationship is developing and how it will develop in the future. Thank you so much for being with us. That's Silvia Colombo, columnist at the Brazilian newspaper Folha da São Paulo. Now, threat landscape, there's a phrase you increasingly hear in business. What it means is all the big outside factors that could pose a challenge to your organisation. Now, that includes everything from climate change to market instability, even to pandemics. So how do businesses prioritise those risks? Well, the tech company Experio has surveyed more than 650 bosses from Asia, Europe and North America to find out how the threat landscape is evolving in these uncertain times. My colleague Davina Gupta has been speaking to Experio's chief revenue officer, Ben Elms. Naturally, there's always going to be economic threats. There's going to be environmental impact that continue to be on the threat landscape of a CIO. Right now, we're seeing, due to the security situation in the world around us, security is a paramount risk that CIOs are addressing, and also financial volatility, financial um, security is seen as a risk, but it's seen less of a risk right now compared with a year ago, with security being top of mind for CIOs. And how does this threat assessment then determine the investments made by companies in different regions? The investments made by companies in different regions at the macro level, we were seeing a pretty similar um, assessment of investments. Uh, Obviously, with all we've seen right now around AI, machine learning and IoT, a significantly top of the investment agenda for all of CIOs, how they embrace that technology, how they use that technology to drive business outcomes. We were seeing connectivity as people want to open new markets a significant challenge because, quite honestly, if you open in a new market anywhere in the world and you don't have connectivity, you don't have a business. So 30% of our respondents were saying connectivity in opening new markets is a critical um, area of investment and working with the right partners to achieve that. What are the challenges that you see in companies to deal with some of the threats that you've mentioned? Look, the challenge with companies is this rapid pace of change this rapid pace of technology innovation. Companies are struggling across the board to have the right talent with the right skill sets and capabilities to embrace, understand, uh, and implement some of these new technologies. So we're seeing definitely a challenge of skill set, a challenge of talent. We're seeing a challenge of local knowledge of markets that companies are willing to expand into. On the talent side, you know, there's a limited pool of skill sets in these advanced areas. We're seeing companies think about how do they reinvest in their talent they already have in the business to be ready uh, for the future we're walking into right now, as well as augmenting that skill set with external resource. But Ben, your research seems to suggest that in spite of this threat landscape, optimism is generally growing among chief information officers of different companies. Why is that? Yeah, so one of our one of my surprises from the research was the level of optimism is up 10% year on year across CIOs. Um, CIOs remain very optimistic about their business outlook overall. It's over 60% of the CIOs were optimistic about the business. 
Um, secondly, they've secured incremental budget, even though the news around us would, would set a challenging financial context. CIOs have been given the investment in budget to um, be able to accelerate their, their capabilities in the technology. Thirdly, I think the boards are very aware that technology is playing a critical component in, in setting strategic advantage for companies and are willing to make that investment um, with the CIOs. So there's a level of optimism. That was Ben Elms, Experio's Chief Revenue Officer, speaking to my colleague, Davina Gupta. And that's it from World Business Report. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Claire Graham. And I'm the BBC World Affairs Editor, John Simpson. And we'd like to tell you about a new podcast from the BBC World Service, The Explanation. The Explanation looks beyond the headlines, bringing you in-depth analysis of the stories affecting our lives. Whether it's important, long-running issues... Or the latest global events. We're making sense of the big stories. And giving you an honest, unvarnished explanation of the world. Search for The Explanation wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.